Turn, if you would, to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. It's good to be in church and worship like we believe God is real, amen? amen. Like, like he's real. <laughs> that's the kind of worship we bring when we come before the Lord. And that's the reality. Like for everybody in this room, like either Jesus is real for you and you're saved and on your way to heaven, or Jesus isn't real to you and you're under the condemnation of God and on your way to hell. And this gospel is about bringing somebody from one place to another, from death to life, from darkness to light. So as we turn in John's gospel, that's his heart towards you. It's like, I, I want you in Jesus. I want you believing in Jesus and having life in his name. That's the heart of this evangelist towards you. All right. Kids, you can't leave me hanging up here, all right? Jesus. Jesus. All right, all right, all right. That's who we proclaim, Jesus. And that's how Smithfield says it, just so when you're at camp, they know whose church it is, right? Jesus. Jesus. Now let's everybody try that. Jesus. Jesus. All right, all right. Let's pray and come before the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. The Gospel of John is just so full of hope and so full of just clarity. Lord, life and death laid before us, light and darkness. And we just pray, God, that we would see a vision of Jesus today, Lord, that would move our hearts. We pray, God, that you would fill me with the Spirit, that you would help me to get behind the cross and, 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 and move out of the way, that Jesus would be made much of, and that we would get a picture of Jesus that we don't usually see, but we desperately need to recover as a, as a people and as the church, because it's in the gospel, because it's biblical. And we just pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would give us the medicine we need wherever we've come in. Lord, we need hope. And I pray that you would just craft arrows of truth to go exactly where you need it in our souls. And if we're without Christ, that we would just be awakened to the beauty and glory of this great Savior who's able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to him. So we pray, Holy Spirit, come now. In Jesus' name, amen. So every so often, stuff begins to kind of accumulate around the house. And junk drawers pile up. Piles start to form, right, throughout the house. Desks get cluttered. And of, cor of course, while Clarissa was at camp, this never happened. But the reality is we, we all deal with sometimes the house gets messy and pretty soon, you know, it starts looking like an obstacle course overflowing for us to trip over stuff and, and all of that. And then typically there's this point where enough is enough, right? Come on, ladies, and say amen. There's a point where, where enough is enough. And somebody says, oh, there's another one. There's a, okay, preach, preach. Um, and, and you're like, that's it? 
it's time to clean house. That, that's it. There's no argument. There's no other discussion. There's no analysis. We're not going to take like a reading in your room to see if it's like contaminated enough to clean. No, it's getting clean. That's it. It's time to clean house. And maybe we feel like, you know, Jesus, we want to make a whip of cords up in there to kind of get it done a little quicker, right? But as bad as our houses can get, right, as much as the clutter happens and as much as things get messy, right, it doesn't probably approach the level of profane unless we're like a hoarder or something and, and, and it's just out of control, right? But something deeper is going on in our encounter today between Jesus and the religious authorities, between the Lord and the one they claim to be worshiping in the temple. The reality of what's happening is this is the first time in the Gospel of John that there's kind of a showdown beginning, a confrontation, and it's centering over the worship place in the spot in Israel that's the most sacred space to the Jews, the temple. And Jesus comes into the temple and he doesn't just like grab a broom and just like sweep a little thing over here. He comes in and he makes a whip of cords and he sees what's going on in the temple and he's just furious and he chases everybody out and casts them out. And he has a lot of words and a lot of concern because of the spiritual declension among the people of God, the so-called people of God, had allowed the worship of God to denigrate to a place where the temple became a circus and a zoo when it should have been a place of worship and prayer to the nations. So I want us to think about that a little bit because there's so many applications it has for the church in our day and for our church in particular. And before we get kind of our back up a little bit about this passage and what I'm about to say, listen, this is the next verses in the, the text of John and we need them. And this word is for our church and for every other church. In the world, we, we need to get this vision of Jesus like this is not Jesus just, you know, he is gentle and lonely in heart, right? He does come to seek and save the lost, but he comes up in the temple and he's furious and he's outraged because the people of God have desecrated the place of worship and they've dishonored God and they have corrupted the very thing that the temple was supposed to be all about. So I wonder what it says for us as a church. What might the Lord be saying to us today? What might he be saying about our worship? What might he be saying about the drift going on maybe in our soul? What might he be saying about the kind of honor that we give to Jesus? And the kind of, the kind of ways in which we serve him? Are they just kind of perfunctory and like going through the motions and ho-hum? Or is there a sense of zeal going on? Is there 
a kind of thing where, where the, the Bible studies that go on in this church are filled with prayer and worship and adoration of the living God and we're getting in touch with God? Or has something else gone on? That's what I want us to kind of think about in the background. What if Jesus came to Smithfield Baptist Church? What if he came to your Bible study? What would he do? What would he see? And how would he respond? So let's read John chapter 2. And verse, starting in verse 13. Actually, I'll start in verse 12. After this, meaning after the sign miracle in Cana, where Jesus turned water to wine, right? After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there for a few days. And then comes our text. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You went up to Jerusalem because it was at a higher elevation. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So does everybody else when they go to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those that were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you, you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's inspired word. This picture of Jesus comes from God's word. Right? So we have to reckon with it. We have to try to understand, step into what's going on. We got to step into the context. If you all were standing, I'd just have you step, right? Step in to the shoes of what's going on here and see what is happening before us. Because it's not an accident that it's Passover. Did you notice that in verse 13? The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So it's the Passover. And the Passover was one of the three great feasts of Israel, right? Every able-bodied Jew needed to come to Jerusalem, the center of worship, that had the temple on the Temple Mount, which was the central place for the Israelite to worship God. And they couldn't even go all the way into the temple because it was so sacred. And where the sacrifices were being made, that had to be done by Levites. So you couldn't even get all the way up in there. But this Passover of the Jews 
takes us back to the Exodus, right? Every Jew would be thinking during this time and commemorating God's deliverance of his people in Egypt when they were under the slavery of Pharaoh. And literally, God took ten plagues and he wiped out every single false god of the Egyptians. Every single plague corresponded to a false god of the Egyptians. Every single one, the lice, the blood, all of that, the blood in the Nile, they worshiped the Nile, right? So every, they worshiped frogs. There was, and then ultimately, the final plague was the death of the firstborn, which Pharaoh himself and all of his sons were the objects of worship in Egypt. And so God strikes at the heart of the idolatry of the pagans who were oppressing the people of God. And he delivers them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he tells all the people, take a lamb without spot and without blemish. Sacrifice it. Take the blood, put it on the lentils of the doorposts, and the angel of death that's coming to judge all the firstborns will pass over your house and you'll be protected. And you know the story. God delivers Israel through the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. Israel comes out. The Red Sea closes back up on Pharaoh's army. And it's an amazing account of God's deliverance. So when you think Passover, you got to think the redemption of the people of God. They're coming to celebrate this. And so it's right that every able-bodied Jew is coming to Jerusalem and they're coming from as far as like Italy and places like that and places in Asia. And so they're not going to be able to bring their animals the whole way, right? So they're going to have to get animals somewhere in Jerusalem. And they're also going to come with foreign currency. Like if you went to France or somewhere else, you're going to exchange your, your U.S. money. is not going to do very good out there. So you've got to exchange that to be able to buy stuff. So all of that is normal. That's happening. The idea of getting animals and changing your money out. But something more sinister is afoot. And Jesus is going to put his finger on it for us. But this Passover celebration is the context. And remember, we studied already that Jesus is what? He's the Passover lamb. He's coming to Jerusalem, the Passover lamb is going to come into the temple and he's going to set right what's run amok in the temple of God. And the temple is the central place of worship in Jerusalem. It symbolizes the presence of God, the presence of the holy, the presence of the one who saved Israel. So you don't want to mess around with temple worship and defile it. And Israel has a history of seeing what happens when the people of God denigrate the worship of God. So why is Jesus got his back up about what's happening in the temple? If they're supposed to get animals and if they're supposed to change their money, what's Jesus' deal? Like what gives? Like you just got a bad day, Jesus? No. Jesus sees something that I want to show you. And this is the cleansing. Look at it in verse 14. 
It starts here. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So number one, he found them in the temple. Instead of outside of the temple where they belonged, the animals and the money changers were doing business in the temple. And he makes a whip of cords and he drives them out with the sheep and the oxen. And he pours out the coins of the money changers and overturns their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things out of here. You got to imagine him probably yelling. Okay. Can you get a, a, a picture of Jesus yelling and being upset? This isn't a sinful anger. This is a proportionate, right, righteous, holy indignation at the profaning of what is sacred at the profaning of the worship of the people of God and at the profaning of taking the, the, the situation and using it to fleece the poor and the people of God by charging exorbitant prices. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of Matthew in this, this same sort of account, except it's at the end of Jesus' ministry because he temp cleanses the temple twice. Once at the beginning, once at the end. Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of But you have made it a den of thieves. So something's going on inside the temple that should not be going on. Number one, the religious leaders have allowed the commerce that should be going on outside of the temple to come into the temple gates in the area of the Gentiles. Because Gentiles were allowed to come and go to the temple courtyard, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, and pray and worship. And many of them who were converting to Judaism would do that. So if you have all of these animals, and it sounds like the Louisville Zoo in there... Right. And then you've got all these money changers who are in there and they're all overcharging and underperforming. And they're taking advantage of the situation and they're exploiting the people of God because I mean, talk about price gouging, right? Like that was going on in the temple. And Jesus sees it and he sees that this is this is to be a place of worship and prayer and, 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 and where the Gentiles can come in and get in touch with God because salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he goes to the world and he comes from the Jews. And so all of the promises of God that have been given to the Jews were meant for the Gentiles and the temple worship where there's supposed to be a purity of worship and an allowance for people to come in and meet God. It's being perverted and there's animals all over the place. And it's like some kind of like, it's like the local Kroger meets PNC Bank meets the Louisville Zoo. And he's just like, what is this? Get out of here. You will not be in my father's house. And defame and profane everything that God stands for. You are supposed to be the people of God. And he's looking probably at the religious leaders and saying, you're allowing my father's house to be made a mockery. Do you, got, do you have that zeal going on in your soul for the purity of worship and the glory of God and the, the, the majesty of what it means to be in the presence of God? That's what Jesus had going on. Let's just make a couple observations here. 
from this cleansing of the temple. Number one, we see it in verse 16, right? He tells those who sold pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. You've turned the temple into a marketplace. You've turned the temple into a place of business instead of a place of worship. And he indicts the religious hypocrisy of the authorities and the Jewish authorities who were all about consolidating power, making money, preserving their authority. And Jesus comes in and he flips things on their head and he's chasing people out with a whip of cords, whipping on the oxen as they're coming. Imagine people like a, a, a whole slew of people departing the temple and Jesus chasing them out, shouting these words, my father's house is not going to be a house of trade. Get your pigeons, get your money and get out. You got room in your view of Jesus for that? You got view, uh, a view of Jesus that sees him as utterly holy and utterly caring about all the right things and that he hates all the right things. Can we say Jesus hates something? Does Jesus hate evil? Does Jesus hate human trafficking? Does Jesus hate abortion? Does Jesus hate murder? Does Jesus hate all the things that we ought to hate? So this is who Jesus is. And he's setting the worship right. He's setting the tone for what should be going on in the temple and chasing them out. Second, we see that the atmosphere of worship deteriorates into an atmosphere of dishonest gain and making a buck. They're taking advantage of the situation that everybody is coming from all over the place. And there's only one place to get the animals and only one place to change your money out. And they're taking money from the poor to line their pockets. And Jesus is incensed. This is gentle and lowly Jesus. He cares about people. He cares about people when they're getting robbed. By people who are supposed to represent God. And the whole aroma of this place. It smells like a bank. And like a farmhouse. And it's the inner court of the temple. There's supposed to be praying happening. There's supposed to be worship and adoration of God. And you can't even think straight. Because of all this stuff going on. We just think about church a little bit. We think about what goes on in our worship, what goes on in our Bible studies, what goes on in these ways. And, and I'm just sobered. You know, when I look at TV, t television preachers, and they're all about making a buck. It's all about your best life now and line my pockets. Jesus has got some words for that. It comes straight out of this passage. You're not going to make my house a house of trade. You're not going to make the, 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 the church a place to make a buck. It's a, it's a hospital for helping people. It's a sanctuary for getting people in touch with God. 
And of course, the church isn't a building. It's the gathered believers worshiping King Jesus. But Jesus had a zeal for the holiness of God. So when he comes into the temple and he smells rank unbelief and gamesmanship and corruption, he deals with it so severely and so seriously. I mean, let's not forget, like, that when people, you know, the, the family of Achan steals something in the Old Testament and the ground opens up out from under Achan's whole family and swallows him up and his whole family. The holiness of God is not to be trifled with. Like we don't, we don't, when we think about God and his holiness, Jesus has a perfect view of God's holiness. He knows his father. He knows the, the, the reality of sin. And that God's wrath is a very real thing. And him coming into the temple was in a fulfillment of what the Messiah would do, right? Last week, the messianic banquet the new wine of salvation that Jesus provides in Jesus alone, and he gives it abundantly, and it's a picture of abundant salvation. This week we see Jesus coming in, pronouncing judgment on the corrupt worship. you got two pictures of Jesus, and both of them are view, uh, true. He's a savior, and he's judge. He's a righteous judge, and he's a gracious, merciful savior. Malachi... Chapter 3 and verse 1 was a prophecy that's fulfilled this very moment in the temple as Jesus does this. It says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is Jesus. This is what he's doing in the temple. He's setting the, prop, the proper reality of what worship should be. And he's fulfilling prophecy as he comes in and pronounces a judgment on what's happening and the spiritual declension among the people of God at this time. Verse 17 quotes Psalm 69. What does it say there? It says, for the zeal of your house has consumed me. That's what the disciples are remembering. They're, they're thinking about scripture and they're saying, this is what it talked about in the book of Psalms. This is what Messiah would do. Zeal for the house of God would consume him. And this points back to David initially and then forward to Christ. David was so passionate about the house of God he wanted to build the temple, but he was a man of blood and a man of war, and so he couldn't. But he had such a zeal, such a heart for God. He filled the Psalms with his, his uh, songs of praise and his songs of repentance. They're just beautiful. He had the heart of a psalmist. 
And he loved to worship the Lord. And he had a zeal for God. And Jesus would come just like that into the temple and say, I'm concerned about the purity and integrity of the worship of the house of God. So where's our heart today? When we think about how we're living, what are we passionate about? I mean, what gets you fired up? What gets you, what gets you excited? And does Jesus make it up anywhere on that list? The zeal of God filled Jesus' heart. And as we walk in Christ, and as we start to love what Jesus loves, we're going to have a zeal for God building in our soul. Because you can come up into church and just have a dead heart towards God. You can come up into church and go through the motions. Say, I've been doing this a long time. And you grow cold in your heart. And God means to wake you up with this passage and say, I've got something more for you. I've got something. I want to align you with my son. I want to show you how beautiful he is. And I want to show you that he's leading you out of complacency into the true worship of the living God. He doesn't want idol worship. He doesn't want lip service. He wants your hearts. And that's what we'll end up seeing. Because Jesus is going to give them a gospel preview. They're going to question Jesus' motives. Why are you doing this? How come you did all this stuff? And Jesus is going to give them gospel. Look at it in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So think about it. Like the Jews demand a sign. What, what, how, who gives you the right to do this? You just chased us out. You came in the temple like you own the place. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Ultimately, Jesus is doing what nobody else does. How dare you step into the temple and chase me out with a whip? What sign can this carpenter's son do? Right? That's basically what they're saying. Careful, Jewish leaders. Careful. Jesus is mad at you right now. Jesus is not happy with you. You don't want to talk back to Jesus. He's exposing you. He's showing you your heart. He's showing you where you're really at. That's what's happening in the temple. You're getting a heart check from Jesus. And they don't like it. And I wonder, do we... Do we respond that way when we get a heart check from Jesus? <laughs> not me. He's not talking to me. Or do we regularly examine our hearts to see if we have a zeal for God, if we actually are living for the Lord and honoring him and committed? Like discipleship's about following Jesus. And you can't follow J Jesus, right? You can't do it well. Do you come to church once a month, right? That's not zeal for God. 
Now, I'm not talking about folks, if, if, if you have, don't hear me on this, if you have, there, there's medical reasons you can't be in church. Or there's extraneous family region, re, reasons you can't be in church. I'm talking about, like, if you can be in church and you're not in church, right? There's no zeal for God if you're in, in church once a month. This is, this is a calling out of that sort of thing, right? Look what Jesus says to them. You want a reason why I'm doing this? He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. That's really cryptic, right? <laughs> Jesus is not just like, like showing all his cards. He's talking to them almost in a riddle. They ask for a sign. Jesus gives them a gospel preview. But it's mysterious. And sometimes that's exactly what you have to do with hard-hearted people. Give them the gospel. You're like, no, this person is just rock solid. Keep giving them the gospel. That's what Jesus did. He pointed to his death and his resurrection. And I love that. Because Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. Sometimes we waste a lot of conversation because we don't get to the gospel, right? We don't ever get there. I remember Charles Spurgeon used to say that every time he took a text, he couldn't wait to make a beeline to the cross, right? He, he'd take a text of scripture and be like, all right, I'm going to preach this text and we're going to beeline to the cross because all of scripture in some way is pointing to the gospel. It's pointing to either a fulfillment in Jesus or it's pointing towards him as a prophecy or it's showing itself to be worked out in the church as the people of God who have witnessed to who Jesus is and been saved. All of Scripture makes a beeline to the cross. And that's exactly where Jesus is at here. He takes them to the gospel. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It's like... Think, of, think about it. He's pointing to himself. He's like, you're going to destroy this body. Did you notice that? He's talking to the, the Jewish authorities. You're going to destroy this temple. But in three days, who's going to raise it up? I will raise it up. Jesus points to them and says, you're going to kill me. You're going to crucify me. You're going to put me on a cross. And they're going to use these very words against Jesus in his trial. At the end of the gospel, he said he could destroy the temple. He didn't say that. He said, you're going to destroy it. You destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. You're going to crucify me, but I'm going to, I'm going to lay my life down as the lamb of God, as the Passover lamb. It's happening during Passover. And I'm telling you about who I am. I'm the lamb of God and I'm the new temple. I'm the place where people come to worship and see God. And Jesus talked like this all over the Gospel of John. Listen to it in John chapter 10. We, we, we spoke to this weeks ago, but just remember what Jesus said to the Jews. And those were hostile Jews at that point too. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. 
and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Is he not just saying, destroy this temple? And in three days, I will raise it up. Except Jesus adds a little nuance there. He says, you might have put me on a cross, right? It, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was sent to the cross by the sinful actions of sinful men. But it was according to the plan of God. And Jesus himself voluntarily and willingly lays his life down for you so that you can be saved from your sins. Remember what I said before? You're either, you're either in Christ and saved and under the blessings of God or you're under the wrath of God, still living in your sins, still walking away from Christ and running from God. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who laid my life down for you so that you could be forgiven. I am the one who rises up out of the grave so that you can have life beyond the grave. And be justified before God because God accepts my sacrifice on your behalf if you will believe. So when hard-hearted people like the religious hypocrites get in your face, give them the gospel. That's what Jesus did. Think about Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, becomes the apostle Paul. And it didn't happen by osmosis. Somebody kept giving him the gospel. Actually, Jesus <laughs> gave him a personal sermon. Said, bop, off the horse. And he preached a sermon to him. And Saul's eyes were opened. And he became the apostle Paul. That's what Jesus does. Are we in a practice of regularly... Sharing the gospel with hard-hearted people. Sometimes we just give it a pass, right? And we're just like, they're just too hard. <laughs> it's too hard to talk to them. But think about it. There would be no Apostle Paul in the church if somebody wasn't willing to share the gospel. And Stephen was the first person to bear witness to the gospel right before he gets martyred to the Apostle Paul, who at that time was Saul carrying the coats of the men who killed Stephen. And I'll just say this, like, I'm a Christian because my grandma would be faithful all the time to share the gospel with me, even though my heart was hard. And it was like a granite brick that just bounced off all the time. And, and she's thinking, you know, probably this is never going to happen. But 21 years of faithfulness and a lot of prayer, and God breaks through. And what happens in verse 22 here? Think about um, verse 22 for a second and, and let it totally revolutionize the way you do evangelism. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It took three years for the disciples to get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And you might be like, I keep saying it, and I keep saying it, and I keep saying it. And it took three years for the disciples 
And Jesus was the preacher. So I got a lot of hope for you. Like you never know when God's going to make that thing click. Just keep sharing it. Keep loving people. Keep sharing the truth. And watch what God does. It may be three years from now or 40. But there's so many accounts of people hearing a word when they were young and it coming alive in their heart when they're 40 years old. Maybe there's some in this room who are like that. So we've seen the temples cleansed, the zeal of the Lord Jesus should be our zeal for God. And then we get this picture of Jesus bringing the gospel to the Jewish authorities in their hard-hearted questioning of him and hypocritical gamesmanship. And he gives them gospel truths and they misunderstand it. But lest we misunderstand it, we have verse 22 reminding us, hey, the disciples believed one day. Thomas, he may have been doubting Thomas, but he put, the, he put his, his hand or his finger in the hand wounds and he put his finger in the side wounds of Jesus and he believed because he saw Jesus risen from the dead. And Jesus said, blessed are you, or blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And that's everybody in this room. You might not have seen with your physical eyes Jesus risen from the dead, but you have spiritual eyes, if you're a Christian, that you actually see glory in Jesus. All right, these last five minutes, I want you to kind of dial in for a second because we're going to see how this applies to us. Because it's one thing to understand what's happening and to sort of kind of get a picture of this view of Jesus as holy and zealous and full of wrath in the temple, chasing people out. But how does this apply to Smithfield Baptist Church? Like, how does this apply to you sitting in these pews? What is God saying to you? And to our worship here. First, just a couple things briefly. We can profane Jesus when we honor him with our lips, but we deny him with our lives. When we honor Jesus with our lips, but we deny him with our lives. We profane Jesus when we give lip service. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said as much. He said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus once spoke of the Pharisees and he said, they look really good on the outside. They're like whitewashed tombs. Beautiful. There's some beautiful tombs out there, gorgeous, all polished up and nice. But you know what? Underneath them is nothing but dead men's bones. And Jesus is saying, there are professing Christians who look just like that. And they're dead in their sins, but they say they're alive. They've professed the name of Jesus, but they deny him by their lives. That's what Jesus is saying. So I just want us to think today. Is that me? 
Is, it, is my heart far from God? Am I playing games with King Jesus? Perhaps that's a word for you. Second thing. We can profane Jesus when we lose our passion for God. We lose our zeal for the Lord. And we no longer love Jesus the way we once did. We don't have the affection for the things of God we once did. And our religion becomes stale. Think of Jesus' words in the book of Revelation to the Ephesian church. And this is the church Paul pastored, okay? This is Paul's church. And if Jesus has this report card for them, perhaps we need to hear it like right now very desperately for such a time as this. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance and how much you bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call them apostles and are not, and found them to be false. You're doing good on some things. I know you've endured patiently and you're bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That's a good report card so far, right? They're, they're, they're doctrinally sound. They're living for the Lord and, 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 and not growing weary of doing good. But Jesus says, I have this against you. That you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen and repent and do the first works that you did. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So I just ask you simply today, is that you? Have you lost your first love? Is there something that's going on in your soul where it's like, I'm just really not, if I'm honest, I'm not committed to Christ. I am a Christian, but something is just not right. And my profession is being denied by the way I live. And the affections I have for the Lord are growing dim. And listen, hear me. I've been a Christian for 20 plus years. This is especially dangerous for older Christians. It's especially dangerous for older Christians who get fixed in their ways. It's like, I've put in my dues. Let somebody else serve in church. I've done my thing, right? I don't need to do all this. It's like, be careful. You may have lost your first love. Jesus says, repent and remember from where you have fallen and go do the first things you used to do when you live for the Lord. Last thing, Jesus sees our hearts and he sees the presence of genuine faith. Look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and no one and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus sees people following him. One of them is going to come up in the next chapter. His name is Nicodemus. Sees all the signs of Jesus, but is not yet saved. He believes Jesus is a miracle worker. He believes Jesus is a good man. He believes he's a teacher, but he's not yet born again. He doesn't really have faith in Jesus. And Jesus knew 
himself what was in man's heart. And I love this. Like, Jesus just knows if I'm being real, right? Like, I can't get up here and preach, right? If I'm not in touch with this thing, like, it's, it's like, I, you're going to know. You're going to know I'm not, like, in touch with it. And it's, it's, the reality is, Jesus sees your hearts. And he sees our faith. And he knows what's in us. And the good news is, he knows the presence of faith in the heart. Even if it's a little ember. And he's like, blowing on that. And when we're reading the gospel and when you're sitting under the word and you're coming to church every week and you're coming to prayer meetings and you're invested and you're committed and you're discipling and you're being discipled, man, Jesus just begins to come alive in your heart and you begin to get excited and there's zeal for God and there's a commitment to Christ and there's a sense in which you're like, man, I just love worshiping the Lord and I want to go tell people about him. But Jesus also sees the presence of a faith that isn't saving. That James said, it's a dead faith. Faith without a transformed life is dead. So let me close with this thought. John, look at verse 12 of chapter 1. John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Receiving Jesus is opening up your life and your heart and saying, Lord, come in. Please forgive me. Cleanse me of my sins. I'm done living my own way and I want to live for you. Following Jesus and believing on Jesus is when you lay down every attempt to save yourself and you rely wholly on the attempt Jesus made and accomplished on the cross for you. And when that happens, faith is ignited in your soul, salvation comes in, and you're a new person. And every once in a while, we need a picture of Jesus that warms the cockles of our heart and says, he's calling you to something more as a believer. He sees genuine faith. He sees hollow faith. And he invites you to taste and see the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we recognize that this is a startling picture of Jesus. Nobody expects to see Jesus chasing people out with a whip. And yet that's what he did. And Lord, what if Jesus came to us today? What if he visited the sanctuary of the people of God at Smithfield? Lord, I pray that you would fan a faith in Christ that is so rich, so genuine, so committed, Lord, that, that we would cast off any hollow pretenses, any religious gamesmanship, any idolatry, any love affair with this present world and lay our hearts bare before Jesus and say, Lord, I want you. I need you. Oh, how I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you. Father, I pray now that you would move on hearts 
And Lord, if we need to commit afresh to you, if we need to repent, if we need to come back to our first love, Lord, that we do it right here, right now, and respond to the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.